let's say like an island just like forms in the middle of the ocean out of nowhere, right? That's like basically a roll up. And it's like, okay, like uh, everyone's thinking about like how to create this island, but then it's like, then you're on this island. Maybe you have your like own native currency for this island, but like if you don't really have a, um, like a very strong internal economy, you need to kind of be able to connect to other islands or other countries that people want to connect to, like Ethereum, like the Cosmos ecosystem, like Solana. Um, and it, right now that's not possible, really. I built Catalyst kind of as a way to alleviate that trade-off, right? I don't think people need to be making that trade-off anymore. Um, and I think how we achieve that is basically like TLDR, it's like through permissionless pool creations cross-chain, right? It's like when a brand new island springs up, right? Just kind of pops out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, it actually already comes with like a bridge, so to speak, right? Or a way in which you can actually have some sort of like intra or inter-island, inter-nation um, like economy, right? And, and that's effectively what Catalyst is able to facilitate. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Hexens, the most hardcore security team in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including work on their ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, New Bank, and more. You'll hear, hear more about them later in the episode, but they will be at booth 832 at permiss Permissionless, which is just one week away. Stop by their booth, chat with the team, get to know them, and don't forget to mention 0x Research sent you there when requesting a quote, and that'll come with a free Web2 pen test with the purchase of an audit. We are recording this intro today on September 5th, and we have a great interview lined up with 0x Jim, the founder of Catalyst AMM, a cross-chain liquidity layer for the modular blockchain future. Uh, but before we dive into the to the details with Jim there, I want to give a quick shout out to Permissionless. Again, T-minus one week until the world's largest DeFi conference comes together to bringing builders, researchers, investors, uh, and just crypto DGENs all into one place in the heart of Austin, Texas. Use code, code 0x30 for a 30% discount, and we will see you next week in Austin, Texas. We are joined today by Effort Capital and Westy to jam on some of the latest market happenings. Uh, we have a good hot seat, cool throne session for you today. Sam, I'll throw things over to you to kick us off. Yeah, it's only uh, Tuesday, actually, when we're recording the intro. So this will come out on Wednesday, but we've already gotten two pretty big announcements today. We heard MetaMask say they are launching a new feature called Sell, which allows you to get from your crypto portfolio within MetaMask to uh, fiat in your bank account very quickly and seamlessly. It's going to be available in the US, UK, and parts of Europe for Ethereum mainnet, and they have plans to launch on L2s in the future. Uh, and then this comes just you know a week or two after PayPal announced their stablecoin, and notably the MetaMask feature I just mentioned, the sell feature is actually going to be eligible to be used with a PayPal account. So I find you know those two things kind of synergistic potentially. Uh, and then we also heard Visa announce that it will be extending its USDC settlement pilot, uh, but this time it will be using Solana and WorldPay and Nuve um, as partners for that pilot, which is super interesting because up until today, it's been on Ethereum with Crypto.com and Circle. So it seems that they see something intriguing on the Solana blockchain for USDC settlements uh, on the back end. Um, 
obviously there's a lot of big advantages with this one. I can only imagine as a business how awful it would be to have so many different bank accounts and all these just different jurisdictions and trying to keep them all straight. And then you've got weekends and then holidays and stuff. So it really does make a lot of sense. Uh, but yeah, nonetheless, it's been a pretty busy day and it's pretty encouraging to see some of these uh, on and off ramps start to get further developed. I wish MetaMask would have called their features something other than sell, um, but I guess that's just bear market things. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's uh, We harped on this a little bit last week, so I, I don't want to bang on on that drum too, for too, too long, but all of the USDC catalysts are, are becoming pretty extreme, right? So we have this Visa on Solana integration. We have the Beam and Visa integration, Shopify, SAP, and of course, this Coinbase and Circle deal. There's this, the chart has bottomed. The USDC market cap is a great indication of, if nothing else, at least US investor sentiment with crypto, right? Because if US investors want to onboard into crypto, generally going to go through Coinbase using USDC. That chart has been completely down only, uh, but we have an ever-growing list of integrations and major connections that are, are, in my mind, truly putting a bottom on that chart. It'll be great to see that kind of turn around um, amongst the other catalysts we have coming up over the next few months, but you know, hopefully we can get a go good, strong finish to the year here. Yeah, I'm overall really bullish on, I think, just payment rails, or overall we've seen over the past couple cycles now that stable coins are really the, the killer application for, for on-chain finance and, and overall DeFi. Um, and I think this is really going to be the, the major, you know, all these different businesses uh, and obviously P2P pay, uh, payment solutions. Uh, I think you're really going to be like the killer application of this next cycle. Um, it might sound boring, like an on-chain Venmo, but I think, or like an on-chain uh, Apple pay, but, I think we've seen that stable coins have, have found product market fit much further beyond like what other DeFi applications and NFT platforms have, have had. Um, and I think this is really, really promising. And, and like Dan said, I'm maybe not as bullish, but I'm, I'm hoping that the, the USDC market cap bottom is in uh, because I think that the market really needs it. And plus one to the uh, to the Solana people here, right? This the Visa cited strictly coming to Solana because it was fast. That that's the thesis: is high throughput blockchains are going to be in demand. And thinking about a payment network that does tens of thousands of transactions per second, you're going to need a fast blockchain. That that was the bread and butter thesis for for the Solana team out there. And and credit to them, it's it's coming through. We're seeing it in real time. I'll be honest though, I'm a little bit surprised, like that they. I don't know, didn't go with an app chain or a roll up. Like you'd think they'd want more control over the the actual stack that they're building on. Like you could see some problems potentially happening, like Solana downtime. Let's say that would happen again in the future. A little bit shocking to me that they wouldn't want a bit more control over the stack. But nonetheless, yeah, that that speed is definitely gotta be a huge factor because obviously as a roll up, you'd have to wait to post a proof or um, you know, be be contingent upon the other activity occurring on that rollup if they chose an Optimism, Arbitrum, ZK Sync era, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch play out. Just I, add, mean, I could see even like an end state where um, maybe over time, like the app chain thesis, you're obviously seeing it in like the L2 world. Um, app specific block space feels like the future for mature products actually reach product market fit, have a wide, uh, have a large community, need to customize their UX to, you um, to again optimize the overall experience for the application as, as they grow like you can maybe see solana's maybe solana does verge into like a app specific block space specifically for payments and it, that becomes like the de facto payment app chain and then maybe 
Cosmos, L2s, Avalanche subnets, or what have you, like as other mature products start leveraging other tech stacks, obviously like the major uh, problem here is like you need native interoperability across these different ecosystems, but maybe like the killer use case for Solana is strictly payments. And then maybe DeFi and other, uh, you know, uh, areas uh, actually like branch out to like app specific block space uh, for, for their own product. But also for Visa, all they're going to be using uh, Solana for is payments, which I think is a pretty simple use case. Like you definitely don't need your own app specific block space um, for that specific, just like one function, but you could see them over time, you know, when they become familiar with Solana, maybe either forking it or using the SVM on a roll up in the future when maybe they do want more app specific block space and there's more things that they they want to do uh, on chain. But for now, I think just sort of testing the waters and seeing, you know, how Solana works, getting more comfortable. Like we know Visa is very crypto native with stuff that they've released in the past in terms of research. So they've definitely done their due diligence. And I know like this is definitely a first step for them uh, building an ecosystem. Yeah, I think the Eclipse team is is bringing the SVM to a role on top of Ethereum. So I think that was targeted to launch 2024, or sorry, the end of 2023. So the end of this year in the next few months, definitely don't know that for certain, but uh, that'll be interesting to see if we do get, you know, if you can get the SVM plus Ethereum security, might be the ultimate place to start building things. But I, I think we're still need to prove that actually works first. Um, but effort, maybe we throw it over to you for the uh, the next hot seat cool throne. Yeah. So while Solana is on the cool throne, and I think overall uh, on you know fiat on ramps and off ramps with stable coins, you know, flourishing on the Solana side, um, Ethereum researchers, I think the overall Ethereum ecosystem is on the hot seat today. Then they're coping over uh, Lido's continued market dominance in the liquid staking category. Um, you're seeing a lot of talk on Twitter from pretty prominent ETH researchers or, or you know, uh, thought leaders in the Ethereum ecosystem space talking about um, why Lido should should self-limit um, and how other smaller LST providers that have like less than 2% market share are promising to self-limit uh, to not grow beyond 22% market dominance uh, in the event that they grow that large and Lido falls to the wayside, which I don't think that's happening. Uh, it's really easy to say when you have you know, one to 2% market share that you promise not to grow beyond 20, uh, you know, a 10x multiple of, of that uh, in the future. Um, you're seeing Ethereum researchers talking about they should potentially enshrine liquid staking uh, to remove like the the worries of, of Lido gaining greater than 33% market share, which they're almost there at this point. I think they're like 32-ish percent today. Uh, I've seen talks about forking Lido to have a more uh, incentive aligned LST provider uh, that promises not to generate or, or grow more than 22% market share. Um, you know, the overall argument is that if Lido has more than 33% market dominance, then that hurts Ethereum's credible neutrality. Lido essentially becomes a governance wrapper over Ethereum, which specifically was never meant to have on chain governance. Um, you know, I, I think it's really short sighted. Um, not only does it harm like the I think on one side, like it does it potentially harm credible neutrality of Ethereum potentially, but I think in the event that the the pendulum swings both ways, if Ethereum as a community decides that Lido is too powerful, decides to enshrine liquid staking into the protocol, or decides to straight up fork Lido and then make something that's more incentive aligned, uh, on you know via the lens of social consensus, um, that harms like the property rights of of developers and of users of Ethereum. Um, you know, I, I think that ultimately the reason why Ethereum is 
valued so greatly compared to other high throughput layer ones is because of its property rights, because of its lendingness, because of this meme of credible neutrality, because in my opinion, it is mostly, mostly a meme. Um, also at the end of the day, these are humans operating validators. These are humans operating, you know, working uh, on, on chain rails. Um, I don't think any protocol can truly be credibly neutral, but I think there's a lot of short-sightedness in the Ethereum community and they really forget like a couple of years ago when liquid staking was first around, uh, or first envisioned, like we easily could be in a world today where centralized exchanges are majority of the stakers of, of Ethereum. Uh, the reason why centralized exchanges like Coinbase or Kraken or Binance are not like the monopoly powers over uh, over Ethereum as a proof of stake network is specifically because of Lido. Um, Lido is also implementing a staking router that's going to help diversify stake uh, of liquid staking tokens uh, to smaller validators in, in, in the set. Um, and they're also implementing dual governance in the future where staked ETH uh, holders will actually have veto rights over Lido in the event of like a malicious act by Lido government or Lido governance. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that's showing that Lido is trying to become incentive aligned with Ethereum long term. I think you can argue there's not one other protocol in crypto today that's more aligned with Ethereum than Lido, maybe Uniswap. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, short sightedness from the Ethereum community. And I think not realizing that we're going to ultimately have like a winner take most or a winner take all scenario in open open source world where network and liquidity effects really drive i think uh brand and, and overall market dominance in the future um again it was kind of like it, it's obvious that this was going to happen um so you know I, i'm really rooting for lido and and i i think the the cause for concern is is overblown yeah i'm sure we all have a lot of thoughts on this but for me like i understand the concern around one entity having so much stake, but I think with this specific self-limiting at 22%, I think it loses a lot of nuance of you know what's really needed. I think first of all, if the only solution you have to this is asking and like begging the protocol themselves to self-limit, I think it's a problem with the underlying design and not a problem with that one entity just doing what's in their best interest. So I think if you want to solve this, you got to do it from, you know, mechanism design from a core protocols perspective. Second of all, I think the 22% is kind of arbitrary and limiting just based on the number of ETH. I'm not sure is the, the best way to go about it. Um, specifically, I mean, I think the reasoning behind that is because if you limit to 22% or under, then it will take at least four entities to collude in order to get 66% 6 of the stake. I believe that's the reasoning behind it. But at the same time, when you look at the design of these LST protocols, it's not like it's one entity staking this ETH. There are decentralized solutions, and Lido is obviously working towards those, and not like in governance as well, where they have dual uh, token governance, where ETH holders will have the ability to veto anything that LDO holders uh, pass, which is super important, as well as building out their staking router, which allows for more decentralized entities that stake the ETH on the user's behalf, um, et cetera. And I think it, you should look less so at the number of ETH staked by these operators and instead look at, you know, the underlying design. Because um, as long as uh, it's aligned with Ethereum, then I think that's good enough for me. And yeah, you, you said it, Effort, that I don't know if there's any DAO that's more aligned with Ethereum than Lido is. And it's in their best interest not to self-limit, but it's in their interest to have a d design that is aligned with the success of 
Ethereum and its proof of stake model. So that's sort of my overall thoughts on the, the situation. Yeah, I tend to agree with you there, Westy. I mean, if, if that kind of like breaks down into three things for me, right? So you have the staking router, which is going to improve the operational side of Lido and working towards a more decentralized outcome. Then you have staked ETH holders getting veto governance rights, thus protecting themselves from the LDO holders and any decisions they make. Um, and then if you have those two things, you're, you're already getting this more mature protocol. And as that progresses, you you're probably going to end up in a world where LDO holders are getting less and less control over the core operation of the protocol, not from a voting sense, but in for more of just like a ossification sense, right? If you have this very mature protocol that is proven to operate in a way you want it, it's likely not going to change that much over time. So personally kind of thinking this is going to resolve itself as those things happen. Um, but to your point about like, don't hate the player, hate the game. It probably comes down to some of those design decisions that were made on the Ethereum protocol itself. And, you know, we had, we don't have that delegated proof of stake network that say you see in the cosmos. And that kind of makes having this, uh, enshrined LST system a little bit more challenging because at the end of the day, people hold ETH and they don't want to run their own validator. That's what we're seeing. And what what's your other option? It's like, okay, well, okay, am I going to use the, the LST that everybody else is using? And if it blows up, then so be it. <laughs> There's a huge other wave of problems. Or am I going to go pick this other smaller LST provider that has 0.02% stake of, of, of total stake and, and go, you know, risk that there's a smart contract bug there? Like, that's the decision we're forcing people to make. And I, I just don't see how we can really expect a different outcome personally. Jokingly, I, if you want to see what the future of Ethereum looks like, it's literally the Cosmos ecosystem. It's literally the Cosmos hub. It's delegated proof of stake. Ether, uh, Cosmos is- Here we go. Look, I, it's the truth, right? Like I, it, they did it over like a longer time horizon. They were able to create this credibly neutrality meme that allows Ethereum as an asset to be like this, you know, ultrasound money, great bearer asset that nobody can control. There's no on-chain governance, but look at it. You're like, yeah, it, it, maybe they started off like that, but in the next couple of years, Lido is going to be the on-chain governance uh, wrapper for Ethereum. There is going to be delegated proof of stake uh, just through like the staking router and, and through liquid staking tokens as a whole. Um, you see, I, you know, Eigenlayers obviously trying to become like this replicated security, interchain security provider for Ethereum. Um, but one, one cool thing I think that Cosmos is building now, and it's, or it's not built, it's built, but it's launching on the Cosmos hub uh, this month. Currently, a governance proposal is up uh, to implement it. It's called a liquid staking module. What that allows the Cosmos hub to do is be cognizant of the amount of stake that is being uh, liquid staked. Uh, you can actually look at it at like a liquid staking provider level. So you can say, oh, Stride has this much of the stake liquid staked. You can do a lot of interesting things with that. You can uh, not just like self-limit a given provider. If you want to do that, you can also limit how much liquid staking uh, market penetration there can be. So the liquid staking module is going to be launching uh, in, in later this month, and it's going to impose a limit of 25% of the stake being liquid staked, saying no, you know, uh, if Shred wants to grow to 100% market dominance, it, it literally can't. The Cosmos Hub prevents, uh, once 25% market penetration is hit, it prevents more tokens being liquid staked. Um, it also al aligns the validators with uh, the liquid staking providers. So each validator essentially has their own liquid staking token and Stride and other liquid staking providers kind of create like their own wrapper around these individual validator uh, liquid staking tokens uh, to consolidate liquidity. But what these individual validator liquid staking tokens do um, 
in the event of like a particular validator misbehaves, uh, you can slash like that one validators, um, you know, tokens and pretty much it, it forces uh, validators to self bond a percentage of their atom uh, to their validator. So that, like they, they have some skin in the game. So that if in the event they do something maliciously, their, their bonded assets actually get slashed first. Um, so there's a lot of like interesting mechanism design around liquid staking that I think like if you go back to it, the origin origination of liquid staking, it started in Cosmos. They were the first people to come up with delegation shares of, of liquid staked assets or proof of stake uh, assets for, for validators. Um, and I think they've kind of seen where the, the end state is or the end game is for liquid staking. And they're trying to create mechanisms in place to, uh, I guess, prevent some of the concerns that Ethereum is currently facing. All right. Well, I think that's probably a good place to to leave things off for this week. And we will jump over to the interview with Zero X Jim talking all things Catalyst AMM. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, everyone. Today we are joined by Zero X Jim, the co-founder of Catalyst, a cross-chain AMM purpose-built for the modular future. Uh, so, Jim, thanks so much for coming on today. We're super excited to just jam on the ideas of why you're building Catalyst. And, you know, that kind of like peels back uh, the, the layers of the modular thesis as a whole. But uh, set the scene for us, man. Why do you think or why do you believe so strongly that the future of blockchain is modular? Yeah, first of all, thanks, thanks for having me on board. Um, excited to kind of jam about modularity and, and Catalyst and uh, why I think Catalyst is, is super good for kind of the, the world that, that we're working towards uh, as a community. Um, why I think the future is modular. Um, I'll kind of keep it brief because I think we could have I could talk about it for, for quite some time, but uh, I do think the net of it is just um, when you look at, you know, how the space is moving um, and maybe looking at even like analogies from like a um, like a, a distributed systems perspective or like a um, like a database perspective. You can kind of see that we're working towards a world where it's like we need horizontal scalability in this case of like block space or, you know, whatever you want to kind of define it as uh, kind of like decentralized compute, trustless compute, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you need to have some sort of like shared infrastructure in order to like achieve that horizontal scalability. Um, and uh, and you need some level of customization as well, right? So it's like, again, the two things are like horizontal scalability and then some sort of customization of, of that kind of decentralized computer block space. Um, and so I think the only way in which we can really do that, and again, we can look at analogies again from like a database perspective, um, is around some level of like shared services uh, and leveraging those shared services in order to like achieve kind of this, you know, um, this kind of end state that we want, again, that achieves that that those two purposes, right, of like being horizontally scalable, right? Um, you know, I think from a database perspective, it used to be like, okay, like, you had your computer, and then you had some sort of like, general, like, um, like shared infrastructure, and like, a, an on premises level. And now we have like cloud computing with AWS and GCP and stuff like that, right? It's like, pretty similar from a block space perspective, where it's like, okay, you got different blockchains, you might even have app chains, right? But like you need to bootstrap some sort of security mechanism. You need to have some sort of data availability. And now you're like, okay, well, if we just abstract some of that stuff, have execution, actually make it very kind of um, customizable in that perspective, we can share some of those other things that we still need to have kind of shared security on. Um, and and I, I think that's kind of like the big reason why we need modularity um, set in a somewhat succinct manner. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm just curious. So, you know, today we have, I don't know, somewhere on the order of, let's just call it 10, like meaningful or potentially meaningful blockchains. When you look out to this end state, is that, you know, hundreds of blockchains, thousands of blockchains, millions of blockchains? I know that's like kind of a hard question to answer, but just directionally, like how many chains do you see the world evolving to? Yeah, I do think it comes down to like how you define chains, right? Um, but if we define it as like like block space or that you know like applications are using applications in this case like application protocols like Aave Uniswap, uh, I do think we're going to probably see millions of them. Um, I do think that in the future every application will basically have its own chain or you know i'll call it like a roll-up or an execution layer um, the same way how like every kind of application basically um in in kind of the web 2 world has its own kind of cloud instance right it's like as as elastic as you need it to be it doesn't even really make sense you know at no point am i saying oh like this rinky dink website that I want to throw together. Like uh, it doesn't make sense for it to be its own like AWS instance. I'll have it combined with other ones. It's like, no, I just do it. Right. Cause it's like so trivially um, like an increment. It's like such a trivial incremental cost to me. And so I feel like it's going to be the same way. Right. So it's like all, every application will probably be its own rollup slash modular chain slash whatever name you want to call it. And if there's going to be like a plethora of, of different applications, like I don't think it's, you know, ludicrous to say that there's going to be millions of these chains. Okay, that teases up pretty nicely too into the question of, all right, so how does um, Catalyst solve some of the problems that's going to come along with having millions of different rollups or chains, if you will, execution environments? Yeah, definitely. So um, I think the big problem that Catalyst is trying to solve is... Um, like, what do you do after you kind of have this new chain live, right? Um, and so there's kind of like, well, there's two points. Like, one is like, I think there's a lot of projects thinking about like how to actually create a new chain or a new rollup, right? You have all these kind of these world frameworks or you have rollups as a service that kind of have like no code deployments with a bunch of infrastructure, like, you know, like a block explorer or what have you um, kind of with it. Um, I don't think there are enough projects really thinking about like what happens afterwards. And so I very much see rollups as like, um, like a brand new kind of nation, so to speak. It's like, um, you know, like, let's say like an island just like forms in the middle of the ocean out of nowhere, right? That's like basically a rollup. And it's like, okay, like everyone's thinking about like how to create this island, but then it's like, then you're on this island. Maybe you have your like own native currency for this island but like if you don't really have a um like a very strong internal economy you need to kind of be able to connect to other islands or other countries that people want to connect to like ethereum like the cosmos ecosystem like solana um and right now that's not possible really um so to speak um you know i i think when a lot of people think about like when new chains are launched, the first thing they talk about is like, okay, how, like what are like, how do I bridge there, right? Like how do I actually like access some of these chains? Um, and so the way that Catalyst kind of thinks about it is, um, and again, this, the second point I want to bring up was like stemming from my experience at, at Aave because 
when I was at Aave, um, like I thought a lot about like, how do you make like an application specific execution environment, whether it be a rollup or a chain that kind of served the needs of, of, you know, of, of, of my team. Um, and I think like the, the glaring thing again was very much like, okay, like in a multi-chain, multi-deployment world in which you're trying to achieve composability, making your own app chain kind of defeats the purpose of that, at least using the existing tooling that we have, right? Uh, and so when I kind of left and I had that kind of feeling um, of, of like this, this trade-off that, that, you know, builders needed to make in order to actually decide they want to make their own application-specific execution environment, I built Catalyst kind of as a way to alleviate that trade-off, right? I don't think people need to be making that trade-off anymore. Um, and I think how we achieve that is basically like TLDR, it's like through permissionless pool creations cross-chain, right? It's like when a brand new island springs up, right? Just kind of pops out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, it actually already comes with like a bridge, so to speak, right? Or a way in which you can actually have some sort of like intra or inter-island, inter-nation um, like economy, right? And, and that's effectively what Catalyst is able to facilitate. Right, okay. So it's just the idea that in a world of millions of chains, uh, we need a way to kind of connect these things and be able to interact, uh, getting assets or value between chain A and chain B. And so Catalyst is effectively you know, a, an AMM that can pool assets across various chains. So let's talk a little bit uh, about the tech stack before we dive into like you know how those swaps actually occur. So there's no base blockchain, uh, and Catalyst is just a series of contract deployments on various chains. So how how is there like the coordination and communication between these contract deployments? Yeah, so I, th I think that's a pretty good like high level overview, right? Like Catalyst, one of the fundamental values of the Catalyst protocol is having these. Uh, execution environments leverage their own uh, like native assets in order to actually facilitate these cross-chain or cross-roll-up economies, right? Um, and so it's not beholden to another kind of organization or another project slash infrastructure in order to facilitate that, which we think is is kind of parallel and complementary to a lot of the the values that we have as a community in crypto, right? Around sovereignty and around um, kind of um, not being beholden to other kind of organizations. So uh, effectively, like uh, the Catalyst tech stack is, um, I'd like to say there's like three layers, right? And so the, the first layer is vaults, which store these assets, right? So you kind of effectively think of it as just smart contracts that hold assets, not too dissimilar to any other application protocol that we're familiar with. The second piece is kind of like this coordinating layer um, that basically is like a math library that can calculate um, a value that we use, in, in, well, that the protocol uses rather, in order to actually co like coordinate uh, liquidity transfers between these vaults on different chains. And then the last piece is our messaging router. And so this is basically an aggregator of any possible like cross-chain communication mechanism as well as state verification mechanism, right? And we can talk a little bit more about what that looks like in a second. But how that effectively works is like when you have all those three pieces, all of them, all, all these kind of catalyst deployments work in a vacuum. So they're not actually aware of what's happening on other blockchains. They're just kind of minding their own business on their home chain, right? 
but basically what happens is like they're able to receive information through this like messaging router, this cross-chain messaging router. And then they're able to uh, basically enact logic or um, like, you know, perform some sort of state transition function after the fact. Uh, and that's where like the, this coordinator mechanism, this math library that creates something that we call the unit of liquidity becomes really important. Uh, but again, we can we can unpack that in, in a second if you want. But at a high level, that's like effectively how it works. It's like every Callus smart contract just minds its own business. But once it receives a message from the messaging router from another Catalyst deployment, it's then able to do things. And it's really the coordinator's role to make sure that like, you know, what's actually being done after receiving the message is accurate. I want to give a quick shout out to Hexens. As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize them as a premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including a security review on their new Polygon ZKEVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, New Bank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis and cybersecurity consulting. Hexens not only uses widely known methodologies and flows, but discovers and introduces new ones on a day-to-day -day basis. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to Web2 pen tests. Yeah, there's been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nascent history, so it's safe to say your team has a lot on the line. Don't skimp out, take your security seriously, and reach out to Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership, and reach out to Hexens at hexens.io. Find them in the links in the show notes, or reach out to them at Permissionless. They'll be at booth 832. Uh, but without further ado, let's get back to today's episode. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And that's a super helpful kind of high level overview of what Catalyst is and like the problem it's trying to solve. But before we get a little bit deeper into the actual tech stack of things, I'm curious, like who is your ideal customer in your opinion? Like who wants to use Catalyst? Because you kind of look at the Cosmos ecosystem and you have IBC. So maybe that's not a great fit. And then you've got some ZK rollups doing shared provers. So there's native interoperability. So I guess ideally, like in the end state of Catalyst, who all do you think wants to plug into that network of liquidity? Yeah, funny enough, you, you brought up like a few mechanisms in which um, like certain blockchain ecosystems are able to achieve like interoperability. Um, that actually is very helpful for Catalyst, right? Um, and it's helpful because I kind of see all these like, um, these mechanisms as um, like when you look back at like the catalyst stack, like these are all just different flavors of what we can use as a messaging router, right? And actually, when we use those things, it provides much better user experience for anyone that's actually performing a swap on top of catalyst. But to answer your question, like our users are chains, new chains and their rollups right? Because the value proposition that we're giving to them is effectively, we can give you connectivity to literally any other catalyst deployment on any other chain. And we actually work at least right now, very closely with a lot of these chain teams in, in order to create an economy that makes the most sense, right? A cross chain economy makes the most sense. And there's a lot, there's a lot more complexity than people think when you want to build uh, a very sustainable cross chain economy. Because there's things like, you know, maybe people don't want to use wrapped assets or maybe they only want to leverage their canonical bridge. They don't want kind of these third party AMBs to be participating. They don't want liquidity fragmentation. So there's a little bit of um, like design that needs to happen up front. And so we work for those chains. 
and we work with those chains users, right? So like at the end of the day, we still work with individuals slash consumers. We have a UI that people can interact with in order to perform cross-chain swaps and liquidity transfers to whatever domain they want, right? Um, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll pause there. I, I still know we have that like open kind of uh, loop on this like ZK aggregators and, and, um, and IBC and stuff like that. Yeah, maybe this is actually a good time to jump straight into the solutions that you guys are using for the cross-chain communication. So um, I think it might be best, actually, if we set the scene with like what a transaction looks like and just kind of skip how the swap logic works for now. And we'll, we'll hit that after. But just walk us through the life cycle, life cycle of a transaction, um, and then we can kind of see where the, the communication side comes in. Yeah, definitely. So um, unpacking a catalyst swap. Um, kind of looks like this. And so let's say there is a, um, let's do like a volatile swap, right? And so we're not actually doing like a stable coin to stable coin swap, which other kind of liquidity network bridges do right now. Um, so we want to kind of have a more differentiated use case. So let's say there's ETH on Ethereum and then Matic on Polygon POS, right? Um, and then there's a user that wants to um, that has ETH and wants to acquire Matic on Polygon, right? And so what would happen is again there's these two catalyst vaults that live on again like ETH on Ethereum and then Matic on Polygon. Um, the user would then deposit their ETH on the Ethereum side into the catalyst vault. And so again we're on the vaults. Then we move down a level where this math library basically calculates something that we call the unit of liquidity, which is effectively like a, there's so many ways to kind of describe it, but I think a really good way to think about it, it's like, it's a universal receipt for the amount of liquidity that you want, to, that, that you just put into the pool that you need to redeem for, right? And so you always get the same amount of liquidity that you put in. And then it actually goes down another level to this cross-chain message router where then it just routes, you know, based on a number of, you know, preferences that you, that, you know, anyone can specify once the vault is created, but basically it can use any arbitrary kind of cross-chain messaging protocol to actually transfer the unit of liquidity alongside some other metadata like, you know, destination uh, you know, wallet address or, or what have you, um, or, or slippage tolerance, right? And so that gets, again, transferred. In this case, let's say we're using something like Wormhole, right? And so it's, again, it's going from Ethereum to Polygon. Once it's delivered onto Polygon, um, it then goes back into the Catalyst contracts on the Polygon side. It converts that unit of liquidity from, uh, you know, the, the amounts that Catalyst can kind of interpret into something that's actually usable, which is like the number of Matic. And then that Matic actually gets withdrawn from the destination vault into the user's wallet. And so for this use, from the perspective of the user, they just, you know, I, you know, sold quote unquote ETH and then bought Matic on the Polygon side, similar to how any kind of AMM mechanism works. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm following. Now, this actually sounds strikingly similar to the idea. I, I mean, obviously, the volatile asset is a huge difference here, but uh, Circle CCTP, where, you know, you bent, burn USDC on chain A, get a receipt, and then take that receipt to another chain. Uh, but obviously, the unit of liquidity here kind of 
that's the that's the that's what feels like it's the x factor to me um but again before we dive into that whole mechanism which i'm super excited to get to uh, i want to you mentioned a few different uh, communication providers there like uh, ibc wormhole how do you think about which providers um are you connect with because there's like i could see i could i could imagine a potential security risk there um so how do you think about which providers you connect to and then like are those path dependent like let's say you have multiple multiple providers would a path from like ethereum to solana always use the same provider or could like anybody opt in to like maybe bid for those or what does that process look like yeah so i do think it it probably makes the most sense to talk about what the end state looks like uh, and then we can kind of like work backwards so the end state is um i see catalyst as uh like a state verification agnostic application protocol which is kind of like a lot of words but basically we're saying that we have like messages that we want to send and we need some way in order to verify that and we're actually kind of unopinionated of how that's verified um well rather we're we may have a we have may have, we may have preferences on how it's verified, right? Which we'll get kind of get to in a second. Um, but we would want to have kind of the most comprehensive view on all the verifying mechanisms, right? And so said differently, it's like we'll aggregate a lot of stuff in order to actually do the verification, right? And so this is where you know having a good good knowledge of the cross chain interoperability space kind of makes sense because now you're aware of like all the different players and all the different trade-offs that they offer. And so something like a POS-based blockchain uh, that's verifying messages, right? Something like an Axelar looks very different from a layer zero, um, which looks very different from native verification using consensus proofs like Succinct or like IBC, right? Um, and so you can... I would say there are preferences that could be kind of um, expressed, right? Uh, from, I think, the Vault creator. I don't think us as like creators of the Catalyst protocol necessarily have, at the end state, we'll have an opinion on it. We want to kind of defer that to the Vault creators. Uh, or maybe we'll have defaults, you know, if that's like a little bit too much choice to give to, to a Vault creator. Um, but that's effectively how we view it, right? It's like, we're an application, we're just going to aggregate a bunch of state verification. That's like info that we don't care about, right? Um, and so that's kind of like the end state. How that kind of looks like as like click stops in order to achieve that, uh, obviously it's, it's slightly different, right? And so right now, like we're still in this phase of like aggregating um, all, the, um, all the different kind of cross-chain interoperability mechanisms. Uh, and we'll probably at least have defaults, like protocol level defaults that can be customized um, over time, right? And so for us, like obviously security or said differently, like mechanism design um, is really important for us in terms of having a more trust minimized approach uh, because that ultimately affects security, right? Which is super important for a protocol builder because one, you know, we want to keep operating and, and two, we want to obviously not not harm users and and have kind of like a fiduciary duty to, to ensure that. Um, and so our kind of vendor selection process and who we aggregate and, and, and who we kind of route messages to uh, kind of fall within those parameters. But again, over time, like we're going to be much more unopinionated and we're going to have more of this like market-based, almost like an intent optimization 
infrastructure, right? It's like you put out a message, you have some sort of parameters that w- in which you want to optimize for. There are people who are bidding. I, I think you mentioned bidding, like people that are bidding based on different AMBs or b- different verification mechanisms that solve for that, right? So it's like if someone cares about trust minimization, you're probably going to use like a native verification approach. If someone cares more about speed and cost, you're probably going to do more of like a POS slash uh, multi-signature type approach, right? Um, so that that's kind of how we see it unfolding. And then is that selection? Uh, you mentioned vault creators. Is that selection on the vault creator or the uh, or the user actually making the transaction? Um, I think it's too early for us to say. Um, I think there's been a lot of debate around that in the community, right? Uh, where layer zero like gives a lot of um, like ex- of that they kind of defer a lot of that expressivity to application developers and other interoperability protocols don't like think application developers don't really care. They would prefer if the infra developers actually kind of just had like defaults. Right. Um, I, I don't know if you guys were like following that debate, uh, maybe like a, earlier this year. Um, and so I, I think uh, for us, like we have a design space on like how we want that to manifest. Um, but you know, it's a it's a trivial kind of decision for us to it's 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 trivial for us to like pick one or the other. We just have to kind of receive more information over time and make the right call when it needs to happen, which is not right now. <laughs> no, that's that's totally fair. And we were yeah, we were talking to uh Brian Pellegrino, the the CEO and founder of Layer Zero not too long ago. And yeah, it's like one of the things that we got brought up there. It's like you know, there's different groups of users that want different things. And like, sometimes people just want the default. Like if it's a a game with NFTs is always his example. Like you don't need this maximal secure thing. Um, But you mentioned uh, that, you know, it's pretty much impossible to have a conversation on around bridging without the words trust assumptions or trust minimization coming up. And uh, me personally, this may be a selfish question, but every time that gets brought up, I love to just get a a new reminder of what the definition of trust minimized actually is. Uh, Can, so can you walk us through like what trust minimized actually means when in terms of a bridging protocol? Sure. So I have kind of a, different take on it um so well i i don't think anyone listening will probably refute it but i think it's somewhat different than what other people say so trust minimization for me means that there are the least amount of um like trust assumptions um in some sort of mechanism that any participant within this this distributed mechanism needs to take on right And so I think how that manifests right now, and I think a very popular definition for trust minimization is something that only relies on the base, like trust assumptions of the two participating chains, right? And so when you look at like IBC and they say that IBC is trust minimized, what it means is like, we're basically trusting like the, we're we're trusting both validator sets of both chains that are communicating. But what really that means is you're trusting the least secure one, right? The one with the lowest kind of stake uh, validating the network. Um, And um, I I think you can actually take that a step further. I think over time, we're going to see mechanisms that are even more trust minimized than even trusting the validator sets. And that's actually moving away from things like consensus proofs, right? Like that that, uh, IBC uses uh, and the succinct uses. And, and looking more at like execution proofs. Um, and so 
I think the most trust minimized thing you probably have is like a smart contract roll up on Ethereum, right? Because you're only trusting one honest full node on Ethereum, which is like stupidly easy, right? Because like all the state technically lives on Ethereum, even though it's all being like, you know, um, all the execution, all the computations being done on like some sort of like roll up environment. Um, so I think that's like the golden standard that we all need to move towards eventually, right? Uh, and how that looks in a cross chain context gets really hazy because it's like, okay, if they're if they're both if two rollups are sharing a DA layer, it becomes really easy. If they're sharing a settlement layer, it becomes very easy. If they're not, then what can you do, right? So that's like the open question that a lot of people in the interoperability space kind of think about right now. Is like in this, it, you're kind of looking at this like very heterogeneous um environment of like you know different rollups with different virtual machines and security or sorry settlement layers and da layers like how do you actually do verification and it looks really really messy and it's hard to scale that and so again it's kind of like an open question about how to really address that in the future of bridging and then so in the context of catalyst does the ability to have a trust minimized swap between chain A and chain B that's Catalyst is deployed to depend on uh, the overlap between the settlement of the DA and specifically how the communication protocol that is being leveraged is connecting to both chains. Yeah, I would, I would say so. Um, at the end of the day, like Catalyst is an application protocol. Right. Uh, kind of what I was saying, it's like we're kind of agnostic to all this craziness that's happening underneath the hood. Um, but we're ver we're very aware of it. Right. I, I actually spend probably the bulk of my time thinking about some of these infrastructure level implications. Um, the more trust minimized, the better. Uh, you know, we're, we work very closely with the Celestia um, kind of ecosystem and we, we do like kind of the 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 minimization of, of, of trust assumptions that uh, a builder needs to make in order to leverage a shared DA layer. Um, but with that said, we recognize that this, you know, in this kind of world of millions of rollups slash chains, there's just going to be a lot of fragmentation, not fragmentation, but a lot, a lot of um, non-standardization, a lot of heterogeneity. Uh, and we actually built Catalyst with that in mind, right? It's like great if there's just like a shared settlement layer and everyone's just using a rollup and there's like, you know, with a shared sequencer, it's great UX, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but Catalyst, as you can probably glean from going through the tech stack, uh, is built for a lot of different ways, right? Um, and uh, and we probably, we're probably not going to see that change. At least I don't think so in the near future. And uh, I think we're well positioned to kind of um, be uh, well, like we're well suited irrespective of like how this kind of infra level changes occur. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And honestly, kind of like building your protocol from the standpoint of knowing you can't predict the future is probably the right approach to take. So I like that. But uh, switching gears a little bit um, over to the AMM and, and swap side of Catalyst, I wanted to talk a little bit about how swaps are actually processed. Can you explain to us uh, the units of liquidity uh, metric that you mentioned a little bit earlier in the conversation, You know how exactly that's calculated by Catalyst AMM? Yeah, so... We kind of walk through a swap life cycle uh, at a high level. And everyone probably saw that uh, I kind of hand waved this like really important piece of it, right? 
Uh, and so effectively, like it, which is kind of like the crux of exactly how Catalyst even works in the first place. Um, and so again, it's like vaults, people put in money, and then this coordinator creates this unit of liquidity, it's sent through some routers, the unit of liquidity does all this you know, crazy stuff, and, and, and it kind of just works. So the unit of liquidity is not like magic, nor is it like a black box. Um, we actually have a, you know, our white paper out. And so folks that are interested in uh, kind of the more formal math of it can, can review it. Uh, but effectively, what the unit of liquidity is, is maybe I'll say what it, what it literally is, and then I'll probably use a few analogies that might be helpful. Uh, so it literally is the calculation of um, of um, like a. It's basically like the it was, okay. So it's a. It is literally the integral of a price curve, right? And so when you look at like a Uniswap um, AMM, everyone's pretty familiar with like constant product market makers and X times Y equals K. Um, a catalyst is an AMM too, so so it works the same way. Uh, the only difference is that it works within the context of just one asset uh, as opposed to two. Uh, and again, the, there's, I'm still trying to find the right way to articulate this, but effectively uh, we achieve that by using like integrals, right? It's like, let's take the ETH pool, for example. So it's like someone's depositing ETH into the pool. Uh, they're moving along this price curve, right? And you actually generate an integral. This integral effectively says like, okay, this is how much like liquidity that you've kind of put into this vault. Uh, so you can kind of think of it as like a proportion, right? It's like, okay, like I, there's a hundred ETH in this pool. I put in one ETH. Um, you generate this like area underneath the curve. It's effectively like 10% or in this case, 1% of the pool, right? You then transmit that uh, as a cross-chain message into the destination chain, and then they say, "Okay, we're just going to withdraw one percent of this pool." Right? That's a super, super simplified, almost like borderline erroneous analogy to use, but I think it's a pretty helpful one. And uh, so that's effectively what the unit of liquidity is, right? It's like it's just coordinating, or it's saying how much liquidity has been deposited on the origin side and ensuring that the same amount of liquidity or the same proportion of liquidity is withdrawn from the destination side, right? Um, so that's like kind of what it looks like formally. I think what's been helpful for people is thinking about it in terms of like USD. And so it's like, okay, like there is a million dollars in this pool, right? And I put in another thousand dollars. I have to make... I the unit liquidity ensures that I always receive $1,000 coming out of it, right? Plus or minus some slippage. Um, so that's effectively what the unit liquidity is. Okay, so I'm going to attempt to try to unpack this a little bit. So, like, I understand that, you know, when you deposit, uh, let's say, ETH on the Ethereum contract, you get this, this uh, it's not, I don't want to say token because it's not a token, but it's just like this accounting metric uh, that holds that piece of value. And like that, that unit of liquidity is your receipt that gets transmitted to chain B. Uh, and then you can withdraw that value. And so, like, does the protocol need to be price aware of like, you know, the value of one ETH when I deposit? Or is it strictly just the, the raw units uh, within, this, within this vault? It's the latter. And so, okay. this is where like, you know, arbitrageurs and external participants ensure the harmonization of of market prices, right? Like any other AMM mechanism. 
Okay, so that would mean that you know, if there is a million dollars of ETH um, on chain uh, on Ethereum, let's say, and let's continue with the Matic example, that there there needs to be a million dollars of of Matic on on the Polygon POS chain. Is that right? Yeah, and like market dynamics will ensure that that's the case. Okay, now that that makes sense to me, right? Because then once you get that, let's say you know I deposited one percent of liquidity on chain A, then I can take that unit of account to chain B and get that one percent of liquidity. So that makes sense because if it wasn't going to be price aware, I just could not wrap my head around how you would get the how you would be insured that that's the case. And so let's talk a bit about that arbitrage opportunity then. So is that just going to exist uh, such the case that arbitragers would be able to? profitably ensure that's the case or like walk us through what that MEV opportunity would look like. Yeah. So there's a number of ways in which um, there is profits to be extracted. Um, it, it effectively looks like from the deposit side and from the swap side. Right. And so the, on the deposit side, if you see an imbalanced, um, you know, imbalanced vaults, like effectively you can like, um, harmonize the balances to ensure that that um that the values are the same right there's just like an opportunity to, to make money from that perspective right um so you you receive like a disproportionate amount of like vault tokens essentially uh in in, in that kind of arbitrage opportunity another opportunity is basically um like w when you're doing a swap people of course this is well documented like they express their tolerance for slippage right and so when you're communicating the unit of liquidity, you can effectively bundle transactions around it to push this transaction to its slippage tolerance balance. And you can kind of take that delta, right? Um, and so uh, we're pretty MEV aware. I, I do spend a lot of my time thinking about MEV as well. Um, and effectively, what it comes down to is we're designing a protocol that is MEV aware and is able to actually create mechanisms to to uh, have MEV searchers like effectively pay for the right of this privileged position, um, or you know pay for the right to access this this privileged information, uh, and or in in doing so we actually accumulate. Um, you know, fees or revenue for the protocol that can be distributed to wherever we see fit. In this case, the default will be to LPs effectively. Okay, so that's in the context of AMM design in, you know, 2023. I think that's all anybody talks about is how can you be an AMM and internalize some of the MEV opportunity that's created, uh, ultimately to benefit LP profitability. I think, you know, IL and LVR, these two popular metrics used to measure that. And, you know, a, being an LP and an AMM today is notoriously negative EV. Uh, so this is a super interesting way to kind of offset some of that and something a lot of DEXs have, have struggled to do and quite honestly failed to do. So I want to know, I want to get a little more and like, how do you identify when that opportunity exists and that a searcher is willing to bid for it? Is there like a, a different swap route you would go through? And further to that, how, like, is there, is, I, I would assume there needs to be some sort of auction mechanism here. Yeah. So the caveat I'll give is that it's not—it's not something that we can publicly disclose right now. Um, but there will come a time where we will disclose it, and we do plan on, you know, not having it be proprietary. Um, but effectively, how it works 
comes down to the cross-chain nature of Catalyst. Uh, and uh, it, all, it comes down to the cross-chain nature of Catalyst. And when, when you look at kind of the transaction lifecycle of Catalyst or really any sort of like cross-chain application, you do rely on a set of privileged actors in order to facilitate those transactions, right? And so you can really, not easily, but like it's a straightforward um, like exercise to basically create a auction type mechanism for those privileged actors, right? Um, sorry if this is like pretty abstract, but that's like effectively how it how it's going to look. The way that Catalyst is MEV aware and, and able to kind of harness some of that um, that value generation is due to the cross-chain nature of Catalyst, right? It's like when you have an AMM or you have any sort of application that um, isn't cross-chain and is basically entirely beholden to the kind of dynamic slash consensus mechanism of the origin chain slash home chain, um, what we're trying to do, like what we're trying to do to capture MEV is not possible for those applications, right? And so um, this is, but I think a lot of applications over time will be more cross-chain and and I think will greatly benefit from that. And so uh, just wanted to like caveat that this isn't like a silver bullet necessarily for everything. I'm just wondering how you think about like incentivizing long-term and sustainable LPs as that'll probably prove rather critical for Catalyst functioning properly. This is an open research um, topic for us and I think just for the broader DeFi community. Um, I would say that one lever that is really you know, um, kind of lucrative to pull is 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 on the MEV kind of recapture um, kind of mechanisms that we discussed. Another piece is around um, creating like logic around LPing such that um, fees, excuse me, um, fees will either outweigh impermanent loss or creating instruments that hedge impermanent loss or create or creating brand new kind of financial instruments um, that provide delta neutral positions um, for for uh, for LP deposits, right? And so funny enough, this is actually a series of research that we're about to post in the coming weeks. Um, but I can talk about it because, you know, it's just research. <laughs> um, so one piece of it is, um, you know, having logic um, on the protocol um, that ensures that that basically tries to maximize LP fees, right? Um, within the boundaries of like, you know, having still like seamless user experience uh, and and not kind of deteriorating from organic volume uh, within a protocol. And so you mentioned like LVR, which I think is is a perfectly good kind of research um, research experiment or, or, or research metric. Um, there's been like more kind of um, like more, how do I say this? Like, um, like real world kind of applications of LVR. Like I think Flare is is another one that that is really fascinating. Uh, and some protocols are, are trying to implement that metric as well in order to to maximize fees. Um, and then around like um, you know the creation of uh, certain hedging instruments, um, leveraging derivatives or leveraging um, basically like um, 
uh, either like creating derivatives that help LPs or treating um, like uh, these liquidity positions like derivatives where you're basically um, like selling volatility um, or you have some sort of like uh, option selling strategy in order to ensure delta neutrality. Um, that also is like, I think, actively being explored on in the DeFi industry. And so I think those are some other levers that can be pulled in order to maximize uh, LP returns. Um, I think putting that aside, there is a big discussion that's happening around what, what does it mean to serve, like what does it mean to help LPs or what does it mean to create mechanisms or, um, or products that maximize LP returns and like why we need that, right? Um, and so I guess like a bit abstract, but it's around like capital efficiency. It's like, okay, like, do we want LPs for TVL sake or like, do they actually serve a certain purpose? How do we like create enough TVL slash LPs, um, or slash liquidity deposited that just achieves the purpose of the protocol, right? Because like liquidity mining and like even having TVL in general, as it came out, you know, like early 2020, was to service a product, right? It's like, okay, we'll always have liquidity for this lending protocol. We'll always have liquidity to do the swap, right? So it's like just getting more and more liquidity, even if it's not actually benefiting the actions that these protocols want to, or the experiences that these protocols want to be creating, uh, kind of defeats the purpose, right? So like, there's a bit of like an existential question around that as well. Um, and I think nothing, no, nothing is greater than... Um, Nothing, nothing's a greater example of that than like RFQ systems, right? They're like, let's do away with LPs and just kind of service the core experience that we've wanted to service as an industry, which is just like swapping assets, right? And it's like, okay, well, then you have like privileged actors. How do you decentralize it? Make them not privileged actors. How do you capture MEV in that example? And I think there's a slew of projects that are kind of thinking about them. I won't name drop them here, but um, yeah, it, it, it's kind of a another kind of somewhat orthogonal pursuit, right? But I think relevant in the grand scheme of kind of DeFi mechanism design. Yeah, yeah, right on. I think that makes a ton of sense and the direction you're pushing there. And at the beginning, it sounded like we're getting dynamic fees. So for that, we thank you. Um, but I'm curious if, are there any like theoretical bounds to what, AMM uh, invariance would be possible here, like because you need to calculate down to the unit of liquidity rather than like the y-axis asset, for example. Like, would a Uni V3 type concentrated liquidity defined by the LPs work, or something like a Curve V2 automated con concentrated liquidity that's rebalanced by the traders rather than the LPs? Like, is is there basically any infinite design space on the AMM curve? Uh, yes, especially because of the way in which. Um like the price curves are designed. Um, basically, Catalyst is like as customizable, as flexible as the human imagination as it pertains to invariants. Um, yeah, so we, it was kind of like a byproduct of, of, of creating the protocol, not necessarily, you know, like a, something that I think people are really craving, but uh, I do think it allows for more design space and allows allows the protocol to be future proof. That's awesome. Well, that's a that was a great overview of kind of like you know how it is, how it works, what needs to happen as far as communication goes. So I, I gotta ask you, where are we today? Uh, I know we're live on testnet, but which which chains are integrated, and ultimately when when are we hitting mainnet? 
Yeah, so right now we're we're on testnet, but we call it our demo. Um, so it was basically showcasing our UI to do swaps um, in kind of a limited functionality perspective. Um, so the demo is live on um, Canto, um, Kronos, and Scroll, which kind of showcased like um, like Cosmos to to roll up swaps, which we thought uh, which got a lot of kind of buzz uh, when it came out a few months ago. Um, but we will deprecate that demo because it's a demo at the end of the day to show something uh, something limited. And so we'll have our real testnet uh, coming out next month. Uh, and then we plan to be on mainnet uh, by end of the year. Awesome. Love to hear that. Well, we're coming up close on the year end now that this year has been blowing by. But uh, I'm excited to kind of get my hands dirty and play with something more than just the demo. And as far as integrating new trains, like what needs to happen from a technical perspective, just given that it's a series of contract deployments. So, um, you know, assuming you already have the code base written for that particular chain's language, is it as simple as just, you know, making an agreement amongst the team or, or how does that work to get a, a new chain deployment? It is stupidly trivial um so it really comes down to what the business case looks like right uh and again this is like full training wheels on uh so it's somewhat manual uh in terms of a decision making process in the future especially as we see the scale that we want to see of like hundreds of thousands and then millions of roll-ups it will be truly permissionless right permissionless deployments using any sort of roll-up framework slash RAS framework uh, that these new chain slash roll-up teams are using. Um, so yeah, so so ultimately comes down to comes down to to the business case for us right now. Um, not not even from like a overhead perspective because that's quite trivial. It's literally from like a uh, just a focus perspective, a go-to-market focus perspective, right? It's like probably doesn't mean anything if someone if a project comes out and you're on like fifty chains, right? So we'll be on. A handful of all of the meaningful ones, I would say. Um, yeah, actually, yeah. Uh, we've seen a lot of proof points that validate Catalyst and, and its value, uh, as well as where we see the space moving uh, in the past few months with, uh, you know, Base uh, coming out and uh, a bunch of other new chains getting announced or, or getting launched. Um, I think it's very timely for, for Catalyst to come out. So I'm excited for that to happen. Do you think this model could theoretically ever plug into native Bitcoin or just given Bitcoin's restrictions, never would be possible? Uh, it's an active research area for us, I would say. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that seems to be one of the, the, the pain points of all cross-chain infrastructure, really. I think ThorChain is one of the only ones I can think of that does have uh, you know, native integration with, with native Bitcoin. Of course, different set of trust assumptions there, but nonetheless, I think that's pretty fascinating. So super excited to see if you guys can get something worked out there. Yeah, I think I think that's an active uh, active research or active point of exploration for us because right, it's, it's Bitcoin. Like The liquidity there alone is, is, is worth kind of the, the engineering slash research hours that we put into it. Yeah. And so zooming out a little further back into the more modular space as a whole, you guys recently, somewhat recently announced, uh, you're working alongside Celestia uh, to kind of build out 
so the role sp- or interoperability for the role space uh, on that DA layer. What is what specifically is is Catalyst doing to kind of connect to these Celestia chains, and and how does that ultimately help the the business case for Catalyst as a whole? Yeah, so Celestia is something that we're really excited about because, um, one, as I mentioned before. I think the user experience of having a shared DA layer is, is, is really great for chain slash rollups that are built on top of them. Um, two, um, I think they have, or the, the team has been contributing to a, a really kind of well thought out solution in Rollkit um, as part of kind of the rollup framework conversation. Um, and so all that to be said, like, um, like we like working within the Celestia ecosystem and kind of uh, showcasing uh, the power of Catalyst. And so how that effectively looks is using Rollkit as kind of like a distribution mechanism for Catalyst, so to speak. So it's like chain builders that are using, uh, they're building their, their chain slash rollups using Rollkit um, can have a, have a Catalyst deployment at launch. And then again, it kind of, allows for the connectivity to every other catalyst deployment and every other chain out of the box. So that's like effectively how it looks um, like tactically. Uh, and then like, again, w- because of the shared DA layer aspect, um, we can actually have a lot of kind of user experience unlocks in terms of reduced latency uh, of swaps between the chains using Celestia. So um, really exciting stuff. And again, uh, I very, very, bullish on the ecosystem so i like participating in any way we can yeah that's a super interesting idea to think about is you know if they if they really do nail that vision where a builder can just go on and you know you, it's like a, a no code environment where you're just clicking a series of check spot check boxes of how you want to deploy your chain you know i could imagine one of those check boxes being deploy with catalyst and already have the contracts natively on the chain that could be super exciting um very interesting future to think about nonetheless and it kind of like also makes you think about you guys also have a partnership with Eclipse, I believe, or you're doing some work with them as well. And that kind of in the same narrative, right? Any of these roll up as a service offerings kind of seem like a natural fit. Is is that the case in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we've found a lot of uh a lot of excitement from the teams uh and ecosystems, I would say, for for what we're trying to bring. That's awesome. Well, Jim, this has been a fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed you coming on the show and, and giving us the ones and twos on, on Catalyst and the modular thesis as a whole. Uh, I'd love to give you the opportunity to tell the audience more about uh, Catalyst and where to find more about it uh, and yourself as well. I know you're on Twitter. Yeah, sure. So Catalyst uh, has a very, very ambitious vision. Um, we are a liquidity network. We're an AMM um that is connecting every chain you know irrespective of anything from language to vm to da layer to whatever whatever right like we believe in a future of millions of chains and rollups we believe in that kind of landscape being very heterogeneous and catalyst is kind of built with that in mind to connect literally all of them so that's that's kind of what we're marching towards um we're on twitter at Catalyst AMM. I'm on Twitter too, at Xerox Gym, although I'm basically just a Catalyst retweeter uh, at this point. Uh, so just a wrapper around uh, another Twitter account. But uh, yeah, that, that's where uh, that's where people can follow us. 
I thought for sure we were about to get the first ever uh, friends friend tech shill right there <laughs> from you, just given the the recent environment. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, well, we'll put those links in the show notes for sure. But thanks a lot, Jim. This is a great conversation, man. Take care. Yeah, thanks for having me.